0: And welcome to uh, another episode of Lines Loved by Donkeys uh, podcast. I am Joe, and with me today is Liam. Yay, Liam. Hello, Liam. How are you doing, buddy?
1: Go fuck yourself, Joe. What's up, Doug? Okay. (laughs) Oh, buddy. I'm doing okay. Uh, As as explained to you uh, before we started recording, my asshole has recently, uh, in violation of
0: the uh,
1: non-proliferation agreement, uh, gone nuclear.
0: (laughs) yeah congratulations to um liam's butthole for splitting the atom um i wasn't uh, aware that we had reached this letter this level of uh of advancement in butthole technology
1: i was i was pretty impressed and a bit shocked but you know (laughs) uh yeah my asshole has sustained fission uh many thanks to all scientists living in my butt involved uh yeah happy to see what the next Fifty years brings. I'm sure it'll be an era of peace and goodwill towards men in my ass. We are gonna have to demilitarize
0: Liam's butthole. Um, oh, dude, that ship has sailed.
1: <laughs> um,
0: you know, sorry, it, it, it's a war zone now. We're specifically uh, actually on topic because we're talking about Kursk Part Four. Um, if if we finally you, got there, yeah. Um the longest series in lines Lived by donkey's history. And I don't actually mean that in, in length of the episodes, but rather the length of time we took to record it. Um, yeah. We did it basically real time for the battle of Kersk itself. <laughs> I honestly, I think the battle might've been shorter. Um, let's see. It took me three weeks to write this. No, my, maybe a month to write this. And then a further, uh, maybe two months to record it. This is honestly pretty embarrassing on our parts, but that's fine. Hey, the the best part is, is people would have no idea if we simply didn't fucking talk about it. So we're really blowing the t- blowing our own cover because this will come out perfectly on schedule as all of our other series have come out. We're really l- giving you a peek behind the curtain of, of of sometimes we have no idea what the fuck we're doing. We're in it's constant solid. disarray,
1: really. Yeah. He's in Armenia. I'm in the United States. Uh, he's still drunk. Uh, um, again, I'll have you know, uh, I'm both simultaneously drunk and i'm over (laughs) oh dude i've had that happen it is your body just a (laughs) stool hardener stool softener. my stools won't know what to do but that'll be the Um, market problem
0: it's actually questionable how drunk i am in comparison to how sleep deprived i am because i slept about four hours (laughs) Um, oh yeah we normally record at what like five o'clock your time noon my time uh give or take it is now 6 a.m. my time and 9 p.m. your time because of, of time zones. Time zones are the fucking devil. I don't know. So there's a, who, there's a lot of time a, anyway. Look, I just know that they weren't on my side here. Um, and you can blame that person specifically for uh, for like uh, daylight savings time. Ugh. Um, so we're on Kursk part four. And when we left you last time, the German operation Citadel had ground to a halt. Leaving a a fresh field of dead Germans and burning tanks in their wake, which is yeah, you know
1: yeah dead Germans, dead Nazis, it, dead. Wehrmacht. It, it, slow down, everybody. It's a uh, it,
0: it's it's a fun crop to reap is is a, is a field full of dead Germans.
1: It's pushing <sighs> them with like a pushing them over with like a back and I'm like come on
0: you get <laughs> I don't know what we're supposed to do with this crop. Um, Now, this led to Georgi Zhukov ordering all Soviet forces to hold the Germans in place so they could set a stage for the long-awaited northern counterattack, which would be called Operation Kutuzov. Uh, Longtime listeners of the show might recognize Mikhail Kutuzov's name being one of the men credited for expelling Napoleon from Russia in 1812. So, they're, they're hitting him with a historical own, which I can... The, the, the deep history nerd in me can respect more than I probably should. Um, <laughs> another thing this did was set the stage for probably curse defining moment. And um, honestly, one of the war's defining moments. If you're a tank nerd like myself, or I, as I've become aware of, a lot of the listeners of the show. And the that is the freaks. battle of Solkorova. Yeah, I think I've pointed this out a few times. Um, nobody's just kind of a fan of tanks. <laughs> like, all it's in, like trains. Yeah, of oh, are like, speaking my language. That's right. Like, you can be a fan of public transit, but you're, but like, if you you're, you're, you're going to be a train guy, it's like nobody just kind of oh, likes tanks a little fan, bit. You're going to be a tank guy. Rail fan, Joe. Rail fan, uh, a, a Rayleigh. I'm calling you railies now. I wish you wouldn't, Joe. Yeah, it, it, it's it's all right. Um, anyway. Not can, I'm not going to get into the Rayleigh fandom. It's it's troubling and and and, and deep lore. Oh boy, howdy is it, Jeff?
1: <laughs> God, is it
0: really? I was just fucking with you. Oh no, dude! There's tons of fashion weird shit
1: and just a bunch of not great people in
0: it. Yeah. How does it always come back to this? Like uh, we have a lot of like um, like people in the show that are into various subcultures uh, or or fans of the show that, have, that are fans of various subcultures that I don't know anything about, and almost. Every time they try to explain them to me, whether it be like aviation nerds or or railies, which I'm sticking to, I'm calling you railies. Um, I have geeks or, are the fucking worst people alive. Or like all these other things, like oh yeah, but there's like this weird fish. So like, how does it always appear? How is it I mean, always a factor in
1: everything? We get, that we get some, we get a lot of good commies in rail fandom, but then uh, you get the people where you're just like ah. Let me tell you about Germany's train network, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, oh, It's like, God. why don't you just swallow a bottle of potassium cyanide? And you'll <sighs> to have to edit that out. Man.
0: <laughs> now, um, we, we do have to preempt this entire episode by, by doing that thing that we do. where We talk about something completely different. Um, and that is talking about other theaters of World War II. Uh, now, this is because this this would directly impact not just this battle uh, or operation, but the entire Eastern Front. On July sure. 10th, the Allies invaded Sicily, finally opening that front that Stalin had been begging for for quite a long time. Everyone in the war, including Hitler, knew that any Italian troops standing in the way of the Allies would be little more than filler. Uh, and the German military would have to take over the Mediterranean theater's weight. Uh, because, you know, the Italians were um, the, uh, not reliable. Sides.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, they're going so, switch sides. Fun personal connection here. Uh, my great uncle was killed at the Battle of Anzio, and until the day she died, my paternal grandmother hated Italians for killing her brother. And my dad had to point out to her, and has pointed out to me more than once, well, it would have been the Germans by that point, number one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like your hatred is on the wrong shoulders here.
1: I think it may have also been with the fact that uh you now she was Irish and there's nothing the Irish love to hate more than Italians. Rightfully so. But
0: is that specifically an Italian uh like an, an Irish thing?
1: Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, yeah.
0: Uh. I didn't know we were talking like inter Catholic gang war here. Oh hell yeah. I was, yeah. Unaw- I was unaware of this legendary beef. Yeah, you gotta you gotta read up uh <laughs> I'll send you some material. All right. Um, you now, Albert Kesselring, who is the commander in chief of the south of the German military, that is in the south of you know Europe as a whole, uh, normally known for his optimism to the point that he had the nickname "Smiling Albert," which is not a nickname <laughs> that wow, that's I would ever tragic. give him. Magic. <laughs> anyway, like Ahmed, because like, and there, there's certain stereotypes that are 100 percent legit when it comes to like. Annoying German military officers. Being upbeat and smiley is not one of them. So, like, anyway, this is smiling Albert. He smiles The yeah, next person when he's calls me that is getting
1: executed.
0: <laughs> next person that calls me smiling Albert is getting pistol whipped. <laughs> um, now, he told everyone that the situation was hopeless and Sicily needed more reinforcements. Any reinforcements, if you haven't been paying attention to the third uh, or the the last three episodes of this podcast, would have to be pulled away from the Eastern Front and more than likely pulled away from Operation Citadel. Uh, Hitler finally accepted that Operation Citadel would have to stop. uh, But the operations gains, which, you know, no matter how minimal, would have to be maintained meaning that uh, effectively the operation could not and would not stop due to the constant unending fighting uh, that would... Yeah, this, you know, this
1: seems well within the realm of possibility.
0: Yeah, we we can't possibly give up these tiny little salients because if you remember from part three, uh, we talked about how there was not uh, a continuous line of advance. Germany had been... Right. Like, all of these various German units had been punching tiny individual salience into a larger kursk salience like there was no front to hold germany had punched in tiny tiny little individual bulges within a bulge that were impossible to hold and hitler couldn't possibly uh like understand the fact that one None of these matter. And two, like, this is impossible to hold. Meaning that Operation Citadel, in his mind, would have to go on for eternity. Or at least until either the Soviet Union or Germany spontaneously died. Um, which, you know, we, we know how that one ends. Um, right. And he, he's being told by virtually every single officer in Germany now that we can't keep doing this. Which, of course, as with Hitler is like, I understand, however, we're going to keep doing this because like, Hitler's yeah. a fucking <laughs> idiot. Now, it was during this meeting that Erwin Rommel, uh, you know, famous Hitler ally until that was no longer politically tenable, openly admitted to other generals that, quote, the whole house of cards would collapse uh, if you know, something was not changed and the uh, nothing was flexed to defend the southern uh, front of Europe. Sure. Now... Rommel, it turned out, would be right, as we all know, Uh, but he would also be right as far as the Eastern Front was concerned, because Hitler was smashing, like, the the German military's head against the wall and hoping that the skull would win. Um, And the night of the 11th, SS soldiers were occasionally uh, attacked by the the Red Air Force, but also kept hearing Soviet tank engines in the distance. A fuckload Uh of tank engines. Like, not like onesies and twosies, but like Hey, Franz, Not do you hear good. what sounds like several hundred tank do engines? Do you hear what I hear? The forest. Uh, it's like uh, um, the 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 Lorax. Um, the the, the Lorax is, is making T, noises. T-34. <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs>
0: Arm the woods, kids. Um, at this point. The are
1: harmed if the Lorax is armed,
0: Joe. <laughs> Now, at this point, the Germans in this area were under the belief they were simply being deployed there as like security. Um, they didn't think that they were being thrust into like a major offensive. There was no hint that Katuzov was coming. There was certainly no hint that the Soviets are making a huge push towards Pokorova. Um, but then one of their units ran into a massive group of Soviet tanks. And as if that wasn't a big enough hint, a cloud of Sturmoviks appeared and began to attack them along with Soviet artillery. uh, I'm starting to think that we might be in the middle of some shit. Um, (laughs) And uh, and, like, whenever I say this, uh, whenever I say there's like a huge group of tanks or a cloud of Sturmoviks, I mean, like in comparison to what has been occurring in Kursk so far. So like, it's a lot of stuff. Um, And I can't underline enough how, just how much material is already at play. So the fact that they're running into hundreds and hundreds of tanks and dozens and dozens of Sturmevics is is an outlier and also but it turn just turn around turn around. Maybe we should reverse. Um and it's it it makes hard it makes it kind of hard to uh explain the uh, the the scale of everything because I've I've tried to do that for 3 hours now and I feel like I've almost failed because of how Stupidly huge, everything is. Um, now, uh, if you remember, the SS units had to advance to take Pokorova and the reason why they were doing that was to uh, protect the flank of other advancing units. Um, now, this complicated things when Ford SS positions saw more and more tanks approaching, that you know, this might be a problem. So many they could smell the engine exhaust from miles away.
1: Oh. Which it's is like equally gross
0: and impressive. It just smells like cigarettes and diesel, man. <laughs> <laughs> now the SS units by the book had a much better position. If if you were looking at a uh, you know standard tank warfare manual, they had every advantage. The terrain in front of them was wide open, which is perfect for a tank battle where they would have a range advantage because you know mm-hmm. German tanks, for all of their engineering faults and failures, did have better guns on them. They'd also captured some Soviet positions that were nearby and were able to use them to shore up their defenses. So literally everything was in the hands of the SS here. So the SS advance was canceled in order to prepare what was almost certainly going to be a shitstorm. The Soviets on the other side prepared as well. Tankers loaded more fuel and ammo uh, than normal, knowing that pretty much everything they did turned them into a rolling bomb. Like you can't just strap fuel tanks on the back of a t-34 and be like this is fine um right furthermore,
1: it's over basically i
0: would assume right
1: um not only I'm, were they I'm not storing a huge tank guy, but i assume in order to be so widely mass-produced they had to suffer somewhere and was, t-34's armor is it like thick or is it like i assume it's not like paper thin but
0: well i mean tank armor is not like a monolith um the front armor right. and the front turret armor is always gonna be the thickest uh the it, it gets thinner as you go down the sides thinnest at the rear well second thinnest in the rear thinnest on top um and that is okay, you're generally not speaking attack, i guess right that's generally speaking still common for main battle tanks so not as thin in all of these places especially the counter modern anti-tank weapons however um it has no external storage um outside of various like little um, compartments but they're not armored Um, you'll see the same thing in modern tanks. It looks like there's compartments on the outside. They look like the rest of the tank, but in reality, the thin metal, um, you should absolutely not store ammo or fuel in those, uh, because it turns your tank into a gigantic bomb, uh, which is exactly what they did. And the, and the tankers were, uh, understanding what they were going to do. However, you know, they, they, they had no choice in the matter. Mostly that's more important is like, you're going to load all the shit on your tank and tankers were just like, you know, boss, that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> um, oh, no, it does. Just do it. <laughs> right. Um, now, they were operating, these these T-34s were operating and dedicating themselves to the concept of maneuver fighting. They, these T-34s were not going to dig down and fight like we talked about in the last episode, mostly because their boss got yelled at for burying their tanks, but also because they they needed to hold the Germans where they were. If That was Zhukov's order. It, by letting them take Pokorova, that kicks him directly in the Grendel, their planes fucked so they have to defend and stop the ss from taking pokorova and the only way to do that was to you know attack the ss which were in prepared positions that the hint here is things aren't going to go great um <laughs> i mean they're they're in tanks covered in fuel and ammo um and right. you know it's not good now, Soviet tankers who were about to launch the attack. Uh, said that they were unable to heat to eat the hot meal that was prepared for them, which was out of the norm. Um, they like they knew they were going to go into like they did, the, the the rank and file Soviet tankers didn't know what they were about to go into. However, mm-hmm. when they were getting orders to load up all this ammo, all this fuel, they and then they were given a hot meal. Uh, they were like, out, I assume. I'm getting fucking suspicious here. Um, yep.
1: It's and
0: like then uh, a, a dog, <laughs> a big juicy steak. God damn yeah, look, <laughs> It's like, come on, boy, let's go for the walk for a walk. As you lead them into your car because you're going to the vet, um, right. And uh, uh if, if that was not uh, enough, they were given an, uh, like an unlimited amount of vodka, which uh, they did take. They they were suspicious. Yeah, yeah I'd
1: fucking take it too, man.
0: Yeah, gotta take the fucking edge off, man. Uh, in order to steady their nerves, as some would say, uh, I, I would call that getting shit faced, uh, but you know, whatever, uh, though it's kind of hard to tell if they're shit faced or not, because I don't know what the level Russians of drink. War well, here's the thing. They're given several shots. It's noted. And I don't like, that would be enough to fuck me up pretty good, but I'm also not a, a, a Soviet tank crewman circa 1943 or whatever. Right. So, like, I think that might just be a completely different level of drinking. And this is just enough to make it so they're not shaking behind the controls or something. Right, right, right. They're definitely at the, like, the methadone level of vodka here. Um, Now, by this point, uh, the Soviet tank corps had become desegregated by gender with women and men serving together, both from lack of reserves, but for, you know, practicality. Uh, if you've ever taken a look at the T-34 in person or in pictures, you might notice that it's notoriously cramped and the hatches are very, very small. So tiny um, little women will be better to pilot it. Genius. That's kind of how they, they, they thought of it. I mean, that's my logic too. And it's 2022 yeah. here. <laughs> I would think just like get the small guys to be tanker, get small people oh, to be okay. tankers. But, uh, yeah, um, the smaller frames of women were were able to fit into certain positions, specifically the driver's compartment, better than most men. Uh, now, for instance, we've talked about a certain tanker that had uh, that had taken part in the spell before, uh, and that was future tank commander and current gunner Alexandra Samusenko uh, from her episode about Joseph Byerly. Like this is how she cuts her teeth and ends up getting her her tank command position. Mm-hmm. Now. What happened next continued to be uh, uh, kind of lost to history and which is I understand that is strange hearing from us since you know, we're supposed to be telling you the story. But depending on how you, who you ask or, or what you're talking about, namely the Germans, the battle began as both forces ran just smack dab into one another, which seems dumb. Uh, that's not generally how battles are fought, uh, unless oh, you know, hey you're guys. talking about ancient warfare, because quite literally you have to march into one another. There's little evidence to suggest this is how the Battle of Pokorova started. The main reason being that the SS unit that would face the brunt of the attack, the SS Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler, had its soldiers caught in their sleeping bags as the Soviet tanks finished their deployment into battle.
1: Battle By the time, round two. <laughs> <laughs> but, at the time, nice f- through some SS fucks heart.
0: Uh, unfortunately, the SS is definitely end up being the victor here. Uh, <laughs> spoiler oh, alert. Right. Um, but it just means that uh, uh, how the battle started in, in certain military history circles, they give a little bit too much credit um, to the SS. That being that they were deployed correctly, uh, you know, the two forces simply <laughs> ran into one another. Um, instead of what happened is the Soviets 100% got the drop on them, right. at least in some way. It's. It's a lot more interesting to say that like hundreds of tanks just slammed into one another, like fucking Hot Wheels or some shit. When in reality, it went the way any other battle went. Um, and that is the SS had Ford infantry units um, and that were acting as a screen. You know, um, if the Soviets were to attack, they'd have to attack these infantry first. Those infantry could then warn the the rest of the German line. Recon, uh, right. Sure. Right. Like hopefully get them out of their sleeping bags in time, I assume. Um, now, this SS infantry unit was under constant probing attack. Um, or at least that is what the rest of the SS thought. Uh, like, we're going to leave those guys out there in the middle of the woods. They're going to get fucked with throughout the night. We're going to catch some sleep. Because if you remember, most of these guys hadn't slept in several days. Um, the, right. the meth was was no longer keeping them awake. Um, that is when Captain Rudolf von Ribbentrop, no, no, no relation, an SS oh, company oh. commander, was ordered to go out and see what exactly was going on on, the, on this infantry screen. Um, and when he rode out there, he saw what he called a, quote, wall of purple smoke, which is the the sign that Germans used for announcing an incoming tank attack. Uh, like the infantry pulls a smoke grenade that's purple uh, because the radios failed or they just need everybody in the area to recognize, oh, dear, sweet Jesus, there's a wall of Russian tanks coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, So he looked out of his tank and just saw a wall of purple smoke. Now, almost immediately after that, a soldier on a motorcycle appeared over the horizon, warning the rest of the unit of the incoming Soviet tanks. Ribbentrop said, quote, what I saw left me speechless. In front of me appeared 15, then 20, then 40 tanks. And then finally, there were simply too many to count.
1: Oh, dear. I mean, (laughs) good, but also. Oh, oh No. (laughs) this is how i wanted this morning to go at all
0: (laughs) because you could tell he just woke up from sleeping for the first time in several days like maybe making some shitty coffee and just like the sun is blotted out by (laughs) (laughs) t-34s
1: fuck this
0: (laughs) i'm going back to fucking Bavaria. this shit sucks (laughs) um the germans were able to get their tanks uh get in their tanks and drive out to meet them due to the almost total failure of soviet artillery support for some reason, nobody was coordinating it, not even ammunition distribution to the guns, and they weren't large. ranged correctly. So it was like a random fit and spurt of supporting artillery. All um, that boys. Yeah, which is bad. I mean, it's kind of incredible when you think about it, when you look at all the, the previous planning that the Soviets did in this defense and the one like the one massive, well, the one massive counterattack before the other massive counterattack. Uh, boiled down to just throw tanks at the problem until the problem is solved, which is problem solving I can support. Yeah, hard um, time. Yeah. Now, the Soviet attack was so disjointed and just weird. Um, like, it had no ability. There was no hope this show was going to succeed. Um, uh, and that is, uh, for instance, the unit, the 5th Guards Army, again, solid name, had been slapped together overnight. Without any real cohesion, commanders hadn't been introduced to subordinate commanders. Nobody had any idea who they fucking answered to. Nobody was even sure of unit composition. Like, who was leading what platoon? Who was leading what company? People were not even aware who their commander was in some cases. Mm. And if that sounds like
1: (laughs) war-winning spirit, baby,
0: yeah. See, the thing is, Liam. Here's here's a here's here's a forty chess move. All right. You can't possibly figure out my unit if I don't know what my, what my unit is either.
1: That is true, um, I suppose.
0: Now, if that sounds half-assed and you know, slapped together on the run the day before that it's going to be used, that's because that's exactly what happened. Um, the Soviets had absolutely no idea how many enemy they were actually attacking, which meant they had accidentally their their way into around three hundred enemy tanks by nine a.m. Oh no. Now, the Soviet offensive was immediately greeted by hundreds of Luftwaffe attacks. The extra fuel carried by the Soviet tanks meant touching them off into little balls of fire with a single shot. Very, very easy. Even though the Germans were able to attack at will due to a total and complete failure of Red Air Force support. And even when they missed the targets, it helped. And what has to be the the greatest success and failure that I've seen uh, in an Air Force. Now, if you remember, this is happening in this the fall, right? It's a very yeah. dry season in most places, which was the point, right? Nobody like the Germans made a point not to attack in the rainy not to do season. Do it in the winter again, right? Definitely not do that again. Um, it, you know, it rains a lot. Um, these roads get churned into utter shit, and you can't use them. So we have to fight in the dry season. However, and I think we talked about this more extensively in our Napoleon in Russia series. Russian dust is a motherfucker. It's like known to be a massive pain in the ass. Yeah. It's it's noted noted to be a massive pain in the ass. And every time when the Luftwaffe strikes miss completely, it would simply send up a gigantic dust cloud, uh, which would blind the Soviet tanks. I mean, it would also blind the, the Nazis as well. But when you're attacking and you're moving around. Sight is actually more important than when you're sitting behind defensive and just launching tank shells into the dust cloud in front of you. And fire mines. And fire mines. Uh, So this meant that the Soviet tanks, which are now charging, uh, which are hundreds of Soviet tanks, mind you, are charging at hundreds of German tanks. The Soviet tanks can't fucking see where they're going. This kind of turns into a, a road rash Situation here, uh, where, where tanks are just slamming into one another, unable to see where they're going. But, I would have got to make a comedy. <laughs> like, if you were to, to shoot this um, scene, you could play yakety so over the background, and it, it fits actually kind of aptly, I think. Now, all this is fine, though. The Soviet tactic was not to overrun the Germans. It was to drown them in their blood. And I don't mean that as a joke. That was legitimately their plan. The first wave made up of nearly 300 tanks of their own was not to was their mission was not to win. Their mission was not even to break through. Their mission was not to encircle the Germans. The first wave of Soviet tanks was to pin the German line down. So like hit it, hit them with such a, a weight of Soviet armor. They could not move. So each successive wave would be able to hammer on them. They would not be able to maneuver out of the situation. The Germans would have no choice but to square up and fight them. Maneuver warfare would be out of the question because the sheer weight of their advance would pin them down and force them to fight. Now, the first unit to face the attack was Ribbentrop's single understrength company of seven Panzer IVs. The few number of tanks didn't seem to bother the Soviets as they simply drove right by them. Um, which like Ribbentrop mentioned this kind of like half comically where he thought that they were going to be like barrel to barrel and like T-34s are just burning right past them. Right. Uh, wow. so, that now, sucks? This honestly ended up being great. If you happen to be in Ribbentrop's single understrength company, because you could oh. shoot at the T-34s flanks in the rear as they drove by, which is what they did. Uh, and this led to a really weird mess of confusion as the, Soviet tanks behind the original ones saw these panzers or maybe didn't see them because of the dust cloud and assumed they were friendly. Cause why else would they still be alive? Right? Sure. At various points, uh, this ended in tank duels at such a close range that their barrels could touch, which aw. <laughs> <laughs> now kiff. making the tanks kiss. Um, when the first Soviet charge was broken, it wasn't by some masterpiece of German tactics. It was by one of their own tank ditches. Remember how I said that the Germans would reuse Soviet defenses because the Soviets had built simply so many of them. There's the excess laying around. And that was the case here. The Germans had captured Soviet positions. So
1: you got to check out these fire mines.
0: And there was a massive tank ditch, which was right in front of the German position that the Soviets had built. And because of the extensive Soviet Uh, defensive works and their their obvious need to keep these secret this advancing tank unit was not given any knowledge or map or whatever of the area that they were attacking that would denote these defenses so they drove blind directly into their own tank ditch Um, now if you remember that these tank ditches were made to swallow and stop bigger tanks like tigers and panthers right. t-34s just parked right in that motherfucker they couldn't get out Like it, it, they didn't just like endo into it they were like end right. to end trapped but right. through the wall of dust smoke and fog as well as the heat of battle more and more tanks just slammed into the ditch now this effectively finished and fixed the problem in something akin to say world war z now, you've heard of the corpse road. You've heard of the corpse pier. I'm here to t- tell you today about the tank bridge. Um, oh, the tank corpse no. bridge, I guess. It, the, the, the realm of corpse infrastructure only grows larger because so many tanks filled this ditch. Finally, eventually, the tanks behind it simply ramped over the tanks in the ditch and cleared it, which is something that should only exist in fucking Call of Duty. If it's stupid and it works and it's not stupid, God damn it! That's right. Um, if, now, unfortunately, there were uh, accidents. <laughs> oh, no. Now, remember how these tanks are filled in the on the outside with fuel and ammo? Oh, no. One of the ramping tanks, which again, I need to point out how fucking sick that is, um, touched off somebody's extra fuel tanks in the back. Oh, no. Setting the entire tank ditch on fire <laughs> which again only sets the ambience to make ramping over it even cooler like that's it, an action movie as ramping long as the tanker tank tank didn't look flames, back yeah. as long as the tanker didn't look back because cool guys don't look back at explosions um so you have these second and third waves of tanks ramping over a tank ditch that is full of dozens of dead tanks, which are now explosively on fire. Jeez and throwing themselves at <laughs> Now, at this point, Soviet officers lost any attempt at command and control as units lost contact with one another, whether that be through clouds of smoke, burning fuel, or dust. And their own rigid command structure, which meant, you know, flexible command was not simply not possible. Right. The reason for this is mostly due to the Incredibly fragile and kind of uh, the incredibly fragile uh, communication arrays that were installed on T thirty fours. Now, uh, communication arrays and, and antennas and the like were almost universally fragile in World War Two. Um, developing technology, so like, sure, there's there's going to be h- hiccups, right? right? The Soviet course. ones on the T thirty fours were installed as kind of like a second thought, so they were worse than usual. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, the main reason for that is obviously these things exposed to enemy fire are going to break, get blown up, whatever. however, the way that they are installed meant they could also shake loose uh and if you've ever been in a tank that is turned on, you might note that this thing vibrates quite a bit um that happens even more when you start driving around, say, over broken ground or ramping a, your tank over right, other flaming tanks.
1: Over other tanks sure,
0: yeah, uh so. At, at one point, uh, communications were limited to, at best, platoon leaders. Uh, that That's like one out of every four tanks. So there's not enough working radios to go around. So as command and control broke down, it turned to a game of follow the leader, which ended up being the fallback idea of the Soviet military. Like, hey, if you can't talk to anybody, simply follow the guy in front of you, which... Seems kind of dumb proof. And it is. However, it assumes that the tank that you're following knows where the fuck it's going. Right. (laughs) Spoiler alert. They did not. (laughs) Slowly, this broke down (laughs) even further as Soviet tanks fought in individual uh, like little clusters with no overall command and control of these units. Like the Battle of Pokorova broke down into an individual tank by tank effort, which is never how that's supposed to happen. Right. Nobody had any idea where they were going, no clue as to what they were doing, and in some cases, no fucking idea who they were shooting at because they simply couldn't see. Oh, and if in case carrying a ton of ammo and fuel was like fragile enough, the Soviet tanks are doing another thing that they're very well known for, acting as personnel carriers.
1: Yeah, well, with, with fire tanks strapped to their backs, it seems great.
0: The great. good news is about the fuel bladder, bladder that you're carrying in the rear of your tank. Cause they make it very comfortable to sit on
1: <laughs>
0: uh, the Soviet tanks were all carrying as many infantry as they could on top. Now these guys got the nickname tank Marines, which in my opinion, the only That's good. badass. Marines. Yeah. Badass. Now, these soldiers would of course hop off and support their armored comrades as we've underlined continuously throughout the last three hours, how important tank and infantry support is now. As long as you ignore all of the horrible, horrible dangers involved in this, uh, say, like getting set on fire, getting thrown off when you take ramps over a ditch or, I don't know, falling off and getting ran over or whatever. Um, this is, sounds like a fun job. Now, during yeah. one of these attacks, That's all that other shit. Yes. Yeah. Minus the fact it's a horrible death trap. It sounds kind of fun. Uh, now, during one of these attacks, a panzer grenadier battalion headquarters is overran and, ta- and taken by tank marines. Now, during one of these attacks, they nearly killed a famed SS officer named Joachim Piper, uh, who unfortunately Skip managed man. to escape. Um, Joachim Piper is a, a guy famous for eventually being tracked down by French Jewish partisans and being set on fire while having his head hacked off. So, Good. sweet. Good. We did it. <laughs> was. Yeah, You're proud to be a Jew. Through all this confusion and the weird accidental stand by Ribbentrop. If you remember, he's the guy that got kind of trapped in the middle of the Soviet advance and the Soviet advance didn't know he was in the middle of them. Oh, hey, guys. Uh, he was able like the he and the German line was able to get their shit together somewhat as around 160 Soviet tanks turned uh, towards what is known as the October State Farm. Um uh, you know how name, which I'm was mad. yeah it's solid name uh now this the the germans were it's dug jake in there from
1: october state farm
0: this is jake from october state farm where is your wheat you have not met your monthly quota <laughs> of wheat um <laughs> t- this version of jake from state farm is not very entertaining um now the soviets turned to uh assault the october state farm now unfortunately for the soviet tankers One of the men stationed there was legitimately one of the best tank commanders and best tank aces in military history, not just World War II. And that's German SS tanker Michael Wittmann. Um, Now, he had been nicknamed the Black Baron, and he would eventually go on to kill at least 100 tanks before his death in 1944. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's a Nazi and he is also in the SS, but like very good at his in, job. Those fucking and numbers don't lie. Yeah, he can be a very, very bad person but very, very good at his job, which unfortunately was the case for too many Nazis. Otherwise, we would have gotten this far. <laughs> I should point out that Accurately counting the kills that he and other tank aces he had during the war, especially the ones by the SS, is very, very, very hard to do. And there's actually still some argument on who exactly killed Whitman himself. Uh, I think they've eventually pinned it down to a Canadian tank unit using a Sherman Firefly, which, cool. Um, However, we know without a doubt that Whitman was absolutely the most deadly tanker of World War II. But just how many enemy tanks he destroyed and, and... the exact circumstances has long not been lost to history, but rather propaganda um, mm. you know, because the Nazis also knew how good Whitman was at his job. So, you know, right. That's a problem. However, Whitman like the, the, pass, the, yes. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm not sure if it's Whitman or Whitman, but I'm going to go with Whitman. However, Whitman and other tiger tanks like his were too few in numbers to truly break the Soviet assaults. T-34s simply kept coming, which, you know, was their plan. Remember, pin them down and then drown them in dead tanks. In their own blood, yeah. The Tigers could kill a T-34 at 1,000 yards, which is, I guess, it, it, the easiest way to explain that if you're a T-34 tanker is bad. You, it, like, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's a, it's a very bad a disadvantage. Whereas a T-34 could maybe damage the Tigers' front plate with some luck at 80 to 100 yards. At this point, the Tiger drivers had learned to, to not only stop at slight angles, but also to never reverse. So, like, they knew their strengths. And if, you, uh, if you've parked at a slight angle, it gave you the, uh, the advantage of if, uh, if something hit you dead on, which, like, if they're charging at you, of course, they're going to hit you in the front slope of your armor, mm. it would just simply glance off because there was no front angle to hit. So, like, they, right. the Tiger drivers were um, learning, uh, because if you remember, they didn't exactly have a lot of pre-deployment training here. They're learning on the fly. Right. Now, that math, the Soviet tanks grabbed onto their innate need to dive into the deep black nothingness we always joke is Russian <laughs> military culture and effectively suicide charge into the Tigers. As you do. That's one does. Now, they wore them down in numbers or forced them to burn through their ammo, which the Tigers didn't carry all that much of to deal with a wave quite like this. Though, to be quite fair, I don't think any tank could deal with an attack quite like this. T-34s were hit and just kept going on fire. And then the drivers who were normally left alive. Uh, the, the way to explain this is the easiest is either a tank is all killed together, that being the driver um, and turret crew. Sure. Or the, the, the driver was killed independently or the turret was killed independently. Sometimes, yeah. and, and in a lot of cases, the driver was left alive while the turret crew burned behind them. Grim, I know. Um, but, and the yeah, drivers driving these burning death traps full of corpses would a, would simply attempt to pilot them while on fire directly into German Tiger tanks. Jesus fuck. Now, in one case, a, a tank was hit. And the driver, still alive, jumped out to pull his wounded crew to safety. But then he saw an enemy tiger gunning for a different T-34. He jumped back into the burning T-34 that he had just pulled everybody out of and then crashed it into the tiger, killing himself. Oh, I've done that in Call of Duty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, this is some video game-ass <laughs> that shit.
1: That's, you know, you're loaded up on vodka. You haven't slept in three days. You got a hot meal in you and you're ready to take some chances, you know?
0: This is the kind of shit that's like if somebody, uh, like if you've been playing like Battlefield 1942 and like someone jumps out of uh, like a fighter plane, does a 360 no scope into another pilot and then jumps back into that plane. It's like, yeah, sure. Fuck it. Why not? Now, in other cases, tank Marines would jump off, swarm enemy tanks, and then sometimes get inside of them because remember, it's very hot. So a lot of the German tankers have their hatches open, which... Bad idea. These tank Uh-oh. mates dive inside and just start frantically knifing Germans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you! <Yeah. laughs> In more than one case, it's noted that a it's knife not the hand fight, to hand combat. It's face-to-hand combat. That's right. In more than one case, tank marines jumped inside enemy tanks and got into protracted knife fights with the German tank crews. At which point, like, I'm thinking, like, use your gun. You have a nah, gun. Right. Use your gun. Um,
1: Close quarters, man. You can't. You, can't, you know. Yeah, but too careful.
0: Now, the Soviets somehow were not alone in this. German infantry, desperate and pinned against the wall, did the same thing. Now, this led to running gun battles with Germans and Soviets on the same tanks, each trying to shoot one another around the turret and taking cover around that same turret. What? Holy shit. (laughs) A German half track driver attempted to ram a T 34. And, like, at this point, like, commanders lost the ability to control anything. It was a complete insane free-for-all as people were knifing and shooting each other. (laughs) Uh,
1: uh, Cuckoo bananas, I believe, is the phrase I want.
0: A veteran of the uh, 10th Tank Corps said, quote, The T-34 has three 100-liter fuel tanks on the right side, an additional 10-liter drum with motor oil on the left side. When an armor-piercing shell penetrates the side... Fuel or motor oil spills into the tank and a cascade of sparks falls on the uniform and everything blazes up. God forbid a living being uh, from ever having to witness a wounded, writhing person who is burning alive or ever having to experience the same. That is why there exists amongst tankers a unique, unofficial measure of courage. The number of times you've been on fire inside of your tank.
1: Number of times times number plural. of
0: times times I like plural. Times plural. Yeah.
1: I don't like times plural. Joe, you know, I'm gonna be real honest with you.
0: Look, I'm gonna be straight up with you. I, I've never been set of. I've never been set on fire once inside of my tank. So I got that going for me. That's why they I call you, that that's why they call you Joe Pussy Kasabian. That's right. Yeah. In comparison to literally any Soviet tanker that existed, I'm a massive pussy. Yeah, that's or fair. German tanker Same. for that for that matter. <laughs> I had ashamed to admit it. Now, the Soviet first wave uh, was destroyed almost entirely uh, with the German line holding, but the battle wasn't over. By noon, the second wave hit the front, driving into the sector held by the SS Das Reich. They broke through the first line, running into an improvised German tank company made up of captured T-34s, which had to be confused people. Like, we made it through, boys. Record scratch. Wait, what the fuck? (laughs) Now, it didn't take long for this unit. along with the rest of SS tanks to turn the 50 Soviet attackers into burning heaps of slag. Elsewhere, the SS Totenkopf Panzer group ran to the third guards, rifle corps who managed to pin them down long enough for artillery and the red air force to get called onto them. which thanks guys. You're kind of late to this whole party. Totenkopf was hoping to break through the Soviet attack and link up with Leibnstatt, who was, who's been the one knife fighting and being set on fire throughout all of this which, as you can imagine, the Soviets did not want them to do. Right. They held them at bay with waves of T-34s, which is like most of their pl- problem solving at this point is like, can we fix this by throwing grips of T-34s at you? <laughs> and uh, they, they just made it rain with fire from every kind of uh, artillery that they had at their disposal. Now, this, event, this fighting eventually came to a standstill, keeping the two units separated by just a few miles. Relief would not be coming for Leibnstart. With this, the battle ended, at least for now. The Battle of Pokorova is one of those things that has since been turned to a thing of myth, with thousands of tanks dueling out in the Battle of Giants, ending in a triumphant Soviet victory. And that's uh, not really what happened. For one, there wasn't thousands of tanks. But, I mean, to be completely honest, there was still at least 800. Uh, <laughs> which is a lot of tanks. It's a lot of fucking tanks. Uh, now, accounting assault, assault guns... That's a video game ass amount of tanks. Um, Now, counting assault guns, which remember the Germans have been using as like a a quick fix for their lack of tanks. Right, right. The the number might be closer to high 900s or even 1,000 vehicles being involved in this. However, one of of these things is technically true. One of these things is technically true. And that is the Soviets did kind of win, but only in the coldest, most tactical imagining of the battle. Uh, And one that... The Germans, at least for the moment, believed to be a victory. I think that's important to point out here. The Nazis advance was stopped and they were not allowed to move any further, which was Zhukov's plan, right? Like you cannot allow right. you pin the Germans down, not allow them to advance. You know, the the counterattack is, is about to be launched. Sure. But the Germans also kind of believe that they won. Um, they didn't necessarily take the village, but they did protect the flank of the advancing unit because in their mind, this massive tank force is coming for their flank, which it was not. It was coming for Pokorova In the reports for Leibnstadt and das Reich, the two units facing the brunt of the fighting, they list three tanks as total losses between July 10th and July 13th. The battle taking place on the 12th. And in this, one tank is labeled as a loss. Now, you have to parse through some German paperwork language here. Total losses are tanks that are considered so damaged, they cannot be repaired. So that is three, with one labeled as a loss, meaning it could be repaired. Furthermore, Panzer Grenadiers suffered around 200 dead uh, or missing with another 350 wounded. That is not that bad when you look at Kursk as a whole. For the scope of the battle, sure. Now, I point this out because... You see these casualty numbers get inflated pretty frequently. And I need to point out here why that is a problem. This is German military records. There's no reason for them to lie about their losses. Because remember what these losses entail. Reinforcements. Right. It's in their best interest to be as honest as possible about their losses. Because if one tank is lost, they expect to get one tank in return. If Or if three tanks is lost, they expect to get three tanks in return. If one tank mm-hmm. is lost... Uh, and is not a complete loss. The, they need replacement parts for that one tank. Like this is not some uh, memoir. Not right. Right. More importantly, like a lot of people cite memoirs written by Germans who were not hung after the war, uh, like Heinz Guderian or, or whatever, uh, that they change details to make themselves sound better. This is not how, where those numbers come from. I would not trust Heinz Guderian's memoirs. Now, Soviets' losses per vehicle are not exact, uh, but they're thought to be at least 300 total losses with 7,000 casualties, 3,700 of which were known to be dead or missing, rather than Jesus wounded. Is now, if you notice, that's a hell of a ratio to dead to, to wounded, and that's because yeah. most of the tankers simply burned to death because yeah. of all the fuel. Fireball. <laughs> oh, wait. Is that Pitbull? Is it a Pitbull song? Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. Mr. Yeah. Worldwide going back to World Mr. War II.
1: Mr. Mr. World War II.
0: Yeah. I hope someone just photoshops him like, I don't know, like stutter stepping uh, at the Battle of Pokorova now. He's truly Mr. Worldwide and time eternal. Uh now which is, which is fairly impressive. <laughs> <laughs> That's pit all pitbull. So, you, you remember the beginning of like the original Wolverine movie where it's Wolverine through all of the wars of human history, yes. but it's just pitbull. Like, Mr. Worldwide is like the psalmist happening behind him. Dude, dude was in the OSS. <laughs> now, uh despite all of this, somehow this is means to an end. Remember, the Soviet goal was not to push the Germans back, it was simply to make sure they could not advance so Before, right in the grand scheme of things both could make an argument that they won the battle of pokorova or at the very least it was a stalemate however in the grand scheme of things the soviets won because the operation kutuzov was about to be launched organized by zhukov and the chief of artillery nikolai voronov they would deploy over one million men down from the north of operation citadel across the salient in order to shatter the battered nazi army uh, and, and more specifically, Army Group Center, and turn the tide of the entire war. On July 12th, Russian bombers attacked German bases. Fresh units rotated to the front, and at 3 a.m., the heaviest and most well-coordinated Soviet artillery barrage of the entire Eastern Front opened fire. It went on for over two hours, and it's, uh, at 6 a.m., the main attack began. The Luftwaffe believed that the Western Front attack was a diversion. However, and withheld support, ceding control of the air voluntarily to the Red Air Force, who then, of that course, used to... doesn't seem to be very strategic. Yeah, it seems to be a mistake. Uh, like, uh, I see that we have air superiority, and we will simply give that up.
1: Mm, we, You know, give, give them a chance, boys.
0: Yeah. By the time the Germans were able to figure out what exactly was happening, the Soviets had already driven six miles into the German lines. In the northern sector, Hovannis Bagramian's 11th Guards Army smashed through the German lines and cut off the 5th Panzer Division. Though not everything went so smoothly. Also, small side note here, Hovannis Bagramian, famous hero of the Republic of Armenia. And uh, we have a metro line named after him, actually. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, And a pretty important street um, through the main uh, center of Yerevan. Um now not everything went so smoothly here. In the Bryansk front, the Soviets ran into some hard fighting. It didn't help that their armor support was incredibly and badly obsolete KV twos, uh, which were not what you want helping you. It was one of those situations where the, the Soviet counterattack operation could twos off as a whole was so fucking big that like some corners were gonna have to be cut in order to like hit these this manpower sure. goal. And the KV-2 is simply one of those things like we need tanks. You have tanks at home. Oh, Now, the KV-2s wandered into their own minefields, leaving fourteen Soviet rifle div- the 14th Soviet Rifle Division to charge ahead on their own, only to get caught out in the open by the Luftwaffe, who finally showed up to play. This eventually led to something of an unofficial new Soviet tanker tactic uh, because... In some of these sectors, specifically the Bryansk front, which we're now talking about, the Red Air Force didn't have enough manpower to cover it all, right? Like, if sure. you happen to be in one of these unlucky fronts, you're not going to have any air support, which meant the Luftwaffe could simply eat you alive at its own discretion. Okay. This became such a problem in the Bryansk front that when tankers saw planes in the air overhead, they'd simply jump out of their tanks and run into the woods.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> like, Fair play. <laughs>
0: fuck the tanks if they're still alive in a few minutes uh, we'll come back or whatever Um, which I'm sure was very popular amongst their officers I can see a lot of people getting in trouble for this the NKVD was a throw yeah see the thing is is if you all run away from your tanks the NKVD can't possibly arrest
1: you all (laughs) if all of us have herpes none of us have herpes I say as I I sprint into the woods
0: (laughs) now Eventually, they did break through, however, creating another problem for the Germans. The Soviet goal was again to pin the Germans down and put them in a situation where they'd be unable to move their forces around in order to support one another. This is a a tactic of theirs they keep using, and it works pretty effectively. And it finally seemed to be happening. The 5th Panzer Division demanded help, as did General Rondulik's Bryansk Front. The only unit able to help them was Model's 9th Army. This forced them to run around ragged, trying to put out every little fire that got reported to them as the only still mobile relief force. As you, as you can't do that for very long. Now, right. every unit in operation, Citadel was abandoning all other plans that they had, now switching to the defensive, as they got hammered by, remember, over a million Soviets. As the Soviets broke through at the Bryansk Front, the Germans stationed there around the area of Bolkov called the fighting quote the threshold to the battle of hell jesus as the 61st army and the 20th tank corps threw themselves at the germans like in other places the german line held at first but that was fine the soviet goal was to force the germans to commit themselves even though like remember at the very beginning of of citadel the soviet plan is no we want them to come into this that we want them to fight us in a grinding battle of attrition we can do this all day and that was still their goal they wanted the germans not to retreat which of course they eventually would spoiler alerts world war ii Uh ended in 1945 uh they wanted the germans to commit to a defensive battle because they knew In no situation did they have the manpower to keep this up. They wanted the Germans to dig their fucking heels in and fight them and that is what they did. They committed to grinding attrition warfare that they had no hope of sustaining. Now eventually this, this attrition would break through and the Soviets would be able to advance. A tactical and operational stalemate was fine for the Soviets. It suited their purpose. It was not okay for the German military. And it was certainly not a victory. They couldn't win a defensive battle and be good. Remember, like they can't right. win. Like the, at no point can victory be achieved when they're on the defensive. Famously after the battle of Wagram in 1809, Napoleon remarked, quote, the animals are learning something. Now oh, it Jesus. wouldn't become, <laughs> it wouldn't become such a fatalist observation for Napoleon, at least not for a few more years. Uh, but this is the same thing the Germans were beginning to see. Not to call the Soviets animals, that'd be racist against. Well, myself, um, previous Soviet offensive and victories could always be uh, counted to some outlying factor, even if it wasn't true. It wasn't like if it wasn't for the winter in Stalingrad, for example. If it wasn't for us invading the Soviet Union in the winter, um, mm-hmm. it, there is always something you tack on to the side to put. To bury bonds, every Soviet victory to put a permanent asterisk <laughs> over it, right? every bonds. Got to bury bonds. That shit. That way, you don't have to internalize your own failure. I mean, the America still does this with our wars, right?
1: Oh, you're talking about. And, Us, and never. V-
0: virtually every losing um, uh, power in a war will think of an excuse, and whether it be a battle or a war, we didn't lose under our own volition. It, it was simply X or Y, and here. In July, and clear weather, the Soviets were launching a force on force offensive, and the Germans could not think of a way to stop it. They were losing right. and could not think of the reason why. The animals were learning. The German military was virtually dead on its feet. Nobody was able to sleep due to constant combat, and soldiers were given a steady supply of booze to keep their mental facilities together. They were breaking down from PTSD. The constant grinding warfare.
1: And the meth stopped working.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, not only have the Soviets broken the back of the German military war effort, they've broken the minds of the Soviet or or the German soldier, which is just incredible. While propaganda would say otherwise, it seems like the German military, caught up in the meat grinder of the citadel, had become mentally broken from accumulated combat stress. This included not eating or caring about their own safety. As one soldier put it, quote, I just don't care about anything anymore. Another company commander said, quote, I couldn't deal with it. It was too much for me. I don't want to list all the dead here. How old our men have become. That sure sounds
1: like PTSD. Fuck, that sucks.
0: No matter how hard the Germans fought to hold on, small cracks began to form in their lines, allowing Soviet forces to burst through and circle small bits and pieces, wiping them out little by little. And in the end, forcing the rest of the German line to attempt to do what they could do to de- redeploy themselves in something resembling a, a defensive line with rapidly diminishing means in which to do so. And you know, it's it's funny that the Soviets are doing this because they learned this a few years before in Finland. This is exactly what the Finnish offensives did. Right. Manstein attempted to link his army with the SS units still holding at Pokorova, which would be the last German offensive of Operation Citadel, which was called Operation Roland. This also had the means of stabilizing their line, eliminating at least one of their countless tiny salients they had driven into, into the Kursk salient. Mm-hmm. Their, their overarching plans were a failure, but they were able to conduct a fighting withdrawal and make their line semi more coherent and make the Soviet's job a little bit harder. Okay. As the Germans were grounded into a nub on the ground, Model made up for it with air power. Luftwaffe bombers are flying five sorties a day, stopping only to rearm and refuel, but due to the attrition in the air force, the only ones left flying were the veterans who were still like worth their weight in gold or brand new people who had no fucking idea what they were doing. There's very little nice. in between. Sure. But now, through constant flying, their brains simply weren't working right. You can't work that hard for that long, no matter how many, how much meth you pump into your pilot. So they began to make bad choices. Their reflexes slowed and soon they began to be shot down or crash at a faster rate. Things were going so badly that by July 20th, Hitler forbade any withdrawal by Army Group Center, which is never a good sign. Like that's like that's the death knell. You've, you've right. pulled tactical flexibility away from your commanders right as Model began constructing fallback positions, knowing his lines were getting too thin to keep this shit up. Since Kutuzov had begun, things in Sicily had only gotten worse, and Hitler's last meeting with Mussolini was only one day before this, adding to his pissy mood. Things were, uh, not going great. Doesn't sound like it. A few days later, Hitler agreed with Model, changing the defensive plan to a more elastic defense, while at the same time ordering the SS Panzer units to redeploy to Italy. Now, if you remember all the way back to our first episode, this elastic defense was what Modal had always wanted in the Kursk area. Like, at the end of all of this, after feeding an entire army into a wood chipper, they went back to the original plan, which is, at this point, you can't do that anymore. That chip has fucking sailed. (laughs) Right. The sun order was to abandon the Orel salient in the north, despite the fact the Germans had not yet constructed any fallback position since the last order they were given was to never fall back. <laughs> so oh, the hell, like, yeah, if you just let us build this shit before you do it, God damn it. Certainly like, again, I'm starting to think Hitler's not good at his job. <laughs> now, where's the fucking meth? <laughs> The Germans began their withdrawal from all of the gains of Citadel, to which there were not really many, anyway, so smoothly and quickly that the Soviets simply let them. Not really having a reason to apply any pl- pressure, like, oh, they're fucking off. Like, let's let us right. let them fuck off. At this point, all operations that the Germans would conduct, still within the Citadel sector, mind you, would be delaying actions at best. Uh, it, it, like, small units, divisions, whatever, throwing up, like, uh, screening efforts. Just, yeah. yeah, So others could retreat and they'd do that over and over again, leaving more and more Germans dead and uh, gaining really nothing for it. Um, Good. It would turn into a slow but steady retreat through the rest of July and into August. Remember, Hitler was the commander-in-chief of the Eastern Front and his field marshals couldn't do anything without his approval. So they were left hanging. Citadel technically over, but without any further plans other than just kind of hang out. They couldn't sure. organize we'll any kind of breakthrough. They couldn't organize reinforcements. They couldn't come up with any kind of defensive structure. They had to like wait for Hitler. Not saying that Model or Manstein would have like Manstein would have been better at this, but like they could have acted quicker and they they were going to lose either way. I mean there's there's no right. way around that. But they would have lost less. Uh Model right. and Manstein were were very much Aware and pretty much everyone else demanded reinforcements or authorization to conduct what was called "quote mobile operations," which in German military parlance meant withdrawing to a better position. Because, oh, okay. like, it, it, in this way, the Hitler's orders were simply just leaving them out there, hanging out in the wind, to get hit by a Soviet uh, like ed, uh, advance or offensive or whatever. Sure, and just run uh, or or Got it. sorry tactical retreat or tactical whatever tactical retreat sure No, now if you if you authorized mobile operations the the Germans could look at their map like hey look there's a height here we could dig in have the high ground or whatever you know it, it, still losing effort of course but like it, mm-hmm. you would be in a better position in that losing effort rather than just like hanging out in the wind or whatever right right hitler somehow Refused both of these suggestions. He would not allow mobile operations. He would not allow the Germans to dig in because digging in was defeat. Now you're now you're defending. You need to be attacking. Official German policy: no
1: pussy shit.
0: <laughs> the official German policy is you will lose and you will lose as fast as possible. Uh, now Hitler deeply distrusted Manstein and Model at this point. It turned out this is good for. Well, this was at least for good reason. Uh, even though he always disliked these guys. Um, At this point, the two are openly discussing the hope that someone would kill Hitler. Um, Right now, of course, neither one of them would do so themselves, uh, but they would, they, they noted that um, the only reason that they would not is quote Prussian field marshals do not mutiny, Um, which shut up. (laughs) Yeah. Just shut up. You nerd kill Hitler. Now, Instead, Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt and von Kluge had uh, had to approach Hitler and convince him that a tactical withdrawal from the area would be a good idea. Um, Now, Hitler trusted them as as much as Hitler trusted anybody at this point. And it turns out he shouldn't have trusted Kluge either, as he was almost certainly part of the July 20th plot and committed suicide after it failed. Um, Yeah, um, well, at least he tried. (laughs) I'll give you a C, sir. Um, Now, their idea worked, and Hitler allowed the withdrawal of Army Group Center and South, whose soldiers adopted a scorched earth policy for anything that they passed through, not just supplies. They also evacuated all men between the ages of 15 and 65, most of whom would be shot and left in a nearby ditch. It was, or, it was ordered, and uh, the Russians should find nothing but, quote, find nothing but a field of rubble. So, kill Jesus, the man, countryside, a, effectively. be such a dick about it. Yeah, no need to be a, such a Nazi about this Nazi shit. The Soviet counteroffensive quickly turned into a general offensive, namely the belgorod kharkov offensive. And the Red Army hot on the, the retreating German heels with General Vatut noting, quote, they are burning our bread. Their their goal was to out advance their, their scorched earth policy, which yeah, didn't exactly work. Uh the German withdrawal would pick up speed, men uh like just being pushed ragged to withdraw faster and faster, which like, you know, if you did this several months before, you wouldn't you you wouldn't have had to have done that. Now this broke men's morale uh to the point that by the time they hit the, the Dnieper River, a German officer known as men quote, didn't care they were shot by a Russian nor their own officers anymore. So congratulations, Germany, you broke your own military. Oh, now, Now, this brings us to the end of our series, and rather than say this is a triumphant victory or a crushing defeat, we have to kind of explain what this operation meant, because it was neither of those things. At the end of Kursk was a turning point. The Soviets had seized their strategic initiative, and they would hold it the rest of the war, which sure is a a victory, obviously. The Eastern Front was turned on its head, with the Germans now the ones being on the desperate defensive as their war machines sputtered and struggled to keep up with their losses, which they, they never would at this point. Right. Their professional and material advantages were shattered and would never make a comeback. The Germans undoubtedly had the better military when Barbarossa and even when Kursk began, but that was all gone now. Right. The thing that, that made the Nazi war machine tick wasn't its wonder weapons or its fancy tanks like people believe, but at its core were a well-trained and veteran leaders that made the war machine function. After Kursk, that core was all dead, smashed against miles and miles of Soviet defenses. Just for an example, Army Group South, in the beginning of Operation Citadel to the end of August, lost 38 regimental commanders and more than 252 battalion commanders. That is the accumulated experience and education of literally hundreds of years. In exchange, the Soviets were now the ones at the core with hardened veterans an evolving and learning higher command structure and a rapidly closing technological gap that only continued to close as the Red Army slowly marched towards Berlin. Now, this is the part where, like we talk about the losses and the cost of this operation was kind of hard to fathom. It's fucking astronomical. It's something that will simply never exist again. Right. In around two weeks of fighting, over 1 million people would become casualties. Thousands of vehicles were destroyed. There's really no agreed upon number of casualties per side, but it's thought to be at least 200,000 Germans and another 800,000 Soviets were, would become dead or wounded or missing. Though so the numbers would be could honestly be much, much higher. Just for comparison's sake... Kursk is not the most deadly battle of the war. That honor still goes to Stalingrad. Um, that, that, that fucking podium's not being toppled anytime soon. Sure. But that unfolded over five months. With most conservative estimates putting the butcher's bill at around 2 million, Kursk had half of that in two weeks. Jesus fuck. But it was that way by design, and the Soviet plan worked flawlessly. I mean, if you consider a million casualties flawlessly. Mm -hmm. It could have been a crushing defeat for Germany, but the Soviet counterattack failed to encircle an army group like they did at Stalingrad. But they did bleed the German army white. Its reserves were depleted, and soon literal children would be pressed into combat as the war slowly and inevitably came to an end. And that, Liam, is the Battle of Kursk.
1: You're welcome.
0: As I told you the how are you, how you feeling, buddy?
1: Grim, man. I'm feeling grim. Feel
0: feeling great. Um, now that is our 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 series, The Battle of Kursk. I don't have a question from the Legion today. Um, nobody sent me any. So if you uh if you have a question from the Legion, um send it to me. You can DM me, hit me up on um the Discord uh, if you're a member. If you'd like to ask us a question, donate a dollar, uh, get access to the Discord and you can do it that way. Um Anyway, uh, Liam, thank you for joining me in the last four weeks. Um, it yeah, took us a while to get, to get here, but we got here. Um, and, uh, everybody, thank you for supporting the show. You make everything we do possible. Maybe if you like this, consider supporting the show on Patreon and you get a whole bunch of fun
1: give us bonus your money. content. Give us your money. We're very handsome. Give us also it helps,
0: you know, keep the lights on, which is fun. Um, yeah. Liam, plug your shows.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, hi. My name is Liam Anderson. Uh, I have a leftist Philly
1: sports podcast with my good friend, Tom, that Joe has been on. Uh, It's called 10,000 Losses. Uh, We're recording uh, our bonus on Thursday for this month. I'm also on uh, the famed and wonderful Well, There's Your Problem, which is releasing an episode soon. If we haven't already, Roz just has to edit it. Leave us alone.
0: (laughs) Well, I rest assured that uh by the time this episode comes out, whatever episode you're talking about will have been released. Yeah, let's hope so. Um, it's been a bit. <laughs> and again, everybody, thank you and until next time, um don't invade All Russia glory
1: to the Soviets, I guess. Ugh.